Recording in progress. Evening, everybody. Thank you for coming. Good to see you. Here I am <clears throat> at home, not in the church, as was the original plan. Uh, we did send out an email and, and we changed the website and I really hope that everybody got the word. I really hope that right now while I'm talking to you there's not somebody standing outside the church in Tiburon uh, wondering where we all are uh, like there was last week when some people uh, thought we were meeting at the church. Anyway, here we are, and it's nice sitting with the sound of the rain. Uh, where I am, I can hear the rain. When we first started Everyday Zen, uh, around the end of 1999 or 2000, we planned to do something minimal, simple, minimal, the most bare bones form of practice, but the key was to keep doing it over and over and over again. And uh, because, you know, repetition is the heart of spiritual practice. That's the, that's the secret sauce of spiritual practice. You just keep doing the same thing again and again and again. Week after week. Day after day. Year after year. There's a well-known uh, definition of insanity, which I'm sure everybody knows. It's kind of a joke. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. But since we were not expecting any particular result, our practice was kind of close to insanity, but not identical uh, with insanity. So this was the plan. We would sit at home every day. We would have a weekly seminar. We would, we would have a monthly all-day sit. We would have an annual uh, five or seven day session. And then a practice period that went with it. And we would just keep doing that. The same exact way. Every year. And we did exactly that for about 20 years. And isn't life that way, too? It's just repetition. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, cleaning up, making a mess, going to bed, waking up, brushing your teeth, sunrise, sunset, being young, getting old, dying, being born, winter, spring, summer, fall. It looks like different things are going on, but actually it's just the same thing, repeating again and again and again. And repeating is impermanence. Everything goes, everything returns. So it's, it wasn't just us, you know. I think all religious practice is just repeating, repeating, repeating. And when you do the same thing over and over again, year after year after year, you begin to notice that the same thing is always different. And every moment is always a new moment. The, the Gertrude Stein, who was a great philosopher of repetition, said something like, uh, there's no such thing as repetition. There's only insistence. And so I say all that because it's so interesting to me and a little strange actually that now Buddhist practice has joined the technological imperative of innovation. The last thing in the world you want to do is repeat the same thing over and over again. You must be innovative. So we're no longer repeating the same thing over and over again. Now we have programs that we market. 
And these programs have themes that reflect current issues. And they propose exciting and helpful perspectives and new activities that you can engage in. All of which are described in attractive ways on websites. So you will know which programs you would like to choose. And lots of the programs feature teachers you might have heard of and might want to tune into. Or they might uh, include new exciting teachers who are just emerging and you might want to check them out. So it's pretty exciting and nothing is repeating. Everything is new. This is the general uh, Buddhism. Everyday Zen re remains pretty, pretty boring and repetitive. And we're, we've been trying, you know, to stick to the same simple practice and not do it that way. But then came the pandemic, which kind of wrecked our nice plan of just doing the same thing over and over again. During the pandemic, we had to figure out everything brand new according to the conditions which kept changing all the time. And so far, actually, we were trying to find a rhythm of repetition, but it's hard to find. Like tonight, we have this wonderful rhythm. Every, every last Wednesday of the month, we will gather together at the church. Except when we won't. <laughs> because there's a rainstorm. Maybe next month. Also, because we don't have our own temple on purpose, we decided in the beginning that was too complicated. This means that we have to adjust to the schedules of the facilities we use. For instance, when Gringolch says to us, Sorry guys, you cannot have a sitting here in December. Also, you cannot have a sitting here in January. We have to figure out how to sit at the church in December. And we have to begin our practice period in February instead of January. And when the Santa Sabina Center, where we have had Sashin for all these years, and we will this year again in 2024 have Sashin there, when they tell us, sorry guys, we're closing our doors now, that's the end, then we have to figure out something else. So all of this is to say, check the website <laughs> whenever, you, whenever you attend an Everyday Zen event and make sure that it's, it actually is happening. Like it said, may have said on the website previously. So you can't even trust the website actually because <laughs> Uh, maybe, like, somebody will forget to tell Laura to change the website. So, actually, uh, the Dharma, which proposes to be the, the one reliable thing in the entire cosmos, turns out to be just as unreliable as everything else. But, uh, I think this has all been very good. And somehow, uh, when I was thinking about this, it reminded me of a story that I, I've often told, so many of you will have heard this story a number of times. Uh, some of you maybe haven't heard it. It's, it's, it's a true story of one of my most important Zen insights that I actually had when, a long time ago. Most of my Zen insights happened a long time ago. I haven't had any new insights for quite a while. But a long time ago, when Kathy and I uh, lived at Tassajara with our toddlers, who are now uh, in their middle 40s, we used to uh, share the practice periods equally. And we would take turns going to the Zenda. So we took turns attending the Dharma talks. She goes one time, next time I go. So uh, Tassajara being a very remote place, uh, there would be times when uh, every human being, every adult human being within a radius of 25 miles was in the Zendo attending the Dharma talk, except for me. I was watching the little boys 
this also was true for Kathy when it was her turn. She probably, uh, I, I forgot, but she probably handled it better than me. I, when I was in that position, I was very upset that I was not able to attend the Dharma talk. And even though I enjoyed taking care of our little boys, I was sort of in a bad mood because I couldn't go to the Dharma talk. And one particular day when I was in a funk about this, maybe worse than usual, I realized that if the teachings actually meant what they said, then it must be the case that I was always attending the Dharma talk. Even if I wasn't at the Dharma talk, I was at the Dharma talk. So my watching the boys during the Dharma talk must be just as profound and illuminating a Dharma talk as the Dharma talk. That's because that's what, that's what the Zen teachings are saying. That's what also what Vasubandhu is saying, isn't he? And after I realized that, I, I stopped being upset about not attending the Dharma talk. So similarly, and why it made me think of this, is because even though we're no longer able to repeat the same thing over and over in our practice, actually we are still at the same time repeating the same thing over and over. And the very imbalance and unreliability of our practice these days is good training and it's true reliability. Every moment is a moment. Complete in itself, every moment appears and disappears at the same time and in the same way. And that's why every moment is new and unexpected. And it's that way all the time, whether we have seminar, whether we sit, whether we go to session, it's always like this. Awakening is, is simply awakening to the way things are all the time. And we are not practicing in order to bring about this state of affairs. We're practicing because this is always the state of affairs. And to practice is to remember the state of affairs and give it full honor. I really, I really think that's what Vasubandhu is talking about when he says that the complete realized nature is the imaginary nature, understood as it is. To practice is to meet every moment completely, no matter what kind of moment it is. So probably all this instability and chaos, and, and now I'm not talking about our practice, I'm talking about the world we live in, makes our practice stronger. Dogen also lived in chaotic times. So did the great Tang Dynasty Zen masters. So, the end of the text, the last three verses. Here's Ben's translation of the th last three verses, which sort of follow closely one after the other. Verse 36, through the perception of mind only, there is no perception of knowable objects, knowable things. And through the non-perception of knowable things, there is no perception of mind. Verse 37, through not perceiving either, meaning things or mind, through not perceiving either, the Dharma realm is perceived. Through perceiving the Dharma realm, unlimitedness is perceived. And the final verse of the text, through perceiving unlimitedness, accomplishing well-being for self and other, the wise know unsurpassable awakening, the threefold body. 
and I just, Jay has a little different translation of verse 37, the middle verse, so I'll read his translation of that one. He says, through the non-duality of perception arises the perception of the fundamental nature of reality. Through the perception of the fundamental nature of reality arises the perception of the radiant. A very inspiring way of translating. So these are the final verses. These, this, is, this is sort of the payoff. This is everything. Vasubandhu has been leading up to this the whole way. And they're telling us that when we really appreciate the, the, the three natures, we are going to be radiant Buddhas with a radiant view and with three radiant Buddha bodies that will uh, miraculously offer help to sentient beings. In verse 36, uh, the first line of that verse is the culmination of the text. Everything is citta matra, mind only. Studying the 35 verses has led us to the conclusion in verse 36 that everything is chittamatra, mind only. And now we really know it. There are no objects as we thought there were. There is only mind. As Ben says in his translation, there are no knowable objects. There are no knowable objects. The objects that we know and see and feel and taste and hear and think about are actually not knowable, though we think we know them. There are no knowable objects, but we could say there are unknowable objects. We could put it that way. And this brings us back to uh, where we were last week with the everyday Zen story. Everyday mind is the way. And Nanchuan says, everyday mind is as vast as space beyond our knowing. We really are alive together with everyone and everything. Our lives are very real and they matter a great deal. But we really don't know. We profoundly don't know. And the effect of this not knowing is to give us a deep respect for our lives a deep respect for our human experience and for the lives and the experiences of others. It is amazing, truly amazing, to realize that everything we think we know is wrong. I mean, it's astounding. We, we so want to be right. You know, we so want to know, but everything we think we know is wrong, and we can't help it. But it's okay, because our thoughts are just our thoughts. Our experiences are just our experiences. Our various ideas and opinions about others in the world may be wrong, but there is something that's right. Love and awesome respect. And the Bodhisattva vow to continuously try to understand for the benefit of sentient beings. So when we appreciate that we don't know, that there are no knowable objects, then we will understand at the same time that this is also true of mind. Mind is also unknowable and ungraspable, and mind also doesn't exist in exactly the same way that things don't exist.
So philosophical idealism, and there are many philosophical idealisms, Western philosophy has them, all philosophies have them. Philosophical idealism says that the world does not exist, only mind exists, only consciousness exists. But despite the fact that Vasubandhu's teachings are called mind-only teachings, Vasubandhu is not saying that. Vasubandhu is not a philosophical idealist. Because here he says very clearly, mind also doesn't exist any more than things outside of mind exist. So nothing exists? No. He's not saying that either. He's basically saying mind and the world are a handshake. They exist because of and as each other. So they exist in the unique way that they exist and they do not exist at all in the way we think they do. So this might strike you as a, you know, an interesting but somewhat abstract idea. And it, and it is. But what's not abstract is you and me. Because to say mind doesn't exist is to say that our consciousness of being ourselves, our subjectivity, doesn't exist in the way we're so sure it does. And I'm sure I've said this before, I, I really admire the s sort of philosophical system of the mind-only school that uh, very daringly proposes eight consciousnesses and the seventh of the eighth consciousness is self-consciousness, manas. It's the only Buddhist system that gives full play to the sense of self because it recognizes how persuasive the sense of self is and how central it is to the question of liberation and compassion. So it gives it its own name and category. So what this verse is saying is that when we recognize the three natures, we recognize the experience of self for what it actually is. It's not ours. And it's not us. It's the, it's the dance of consciousness. And this is a wonderful thing, you know. This enables us to live and die freely. It enables us to enjoy the experience of being alive in a world. To be able to flow with our lives and with the world over the course of this very short, very short human lifetime. It enables us to appreciate ourselves as we really are. And finally to relax and let go of this clutching habit of mistaking the self for something it is not, never has been, and never will be. So Vasubandhu calls this non-dual perception, meaning recognizing that the world and the self are both simply flow, simply experienced, with nothing behind the experience. Everything is only wonderfully what it is, and not what we project it to be. And this what it isness things as they is, things as they are, is called dharmadhatu, thusness, 
unlimited, boundless, luminous, radiant. And when we realize this radiance, we enter the three Buddha bodies, which is the vehicle through which we benefit beings. The three Buddha bodies are the Dharmakaya, the Dharma body or the truth body, which is the radiant nature of reality, the Sambhogakaya, the enjoyment body, which is the pure experience of spiritual practice, which is so delightful with all the wonderful feelings that arise in our practice, you know. We extend the range of what we feel as human beings when we practice. We feel bliss sometimes, we feel joy, we feel lightness, we feel all kinds of vague, wonderful feelings. Uh, but on a more ordinary level, we also feel gratitude for our lives. We feel faith in the Dharma, we, in one another. We feel love for our Sangha mates, for our teachers, for ourselves. Sambhogakaya. And the third is the Nirmanakaya, the impermanence body of this normal and natural everyday world. A world in which we have backaches, and stomach aches, and bad moods, and anguish, and despair, as well as pleasure and delight. These are the three bodies that all the Buddhists teach with. And they are our body. That's why when we sit in Zazen, we pay attention to our body. Because our actual body is the three bodies of Buddha. Now, if you are hearing all this and you're feeling that's a little much. <laughs> Surely this is not relevant to poor little me. If you feel that way you're absolutely right. <laughs> you're right. This has nothing to do with you. The sense of self and world that we have all inherited and firmly believe in is way too small to contain three Buddha bodies. So none of these teachings are for you. None of them can be received or understood by you. That is, the you you think you are the conditioned you who is completely wedded to and stuck with that conditioning. These teachings are not for that you. They're for the actual you. The you that fully includes the poor little you but goes way beyond it. Fully inhabiting this you which is surely there this original self, this true self, this Buddha self, you can be a blessing to others. So I keep referring to the Eight Consciousnesses model, and we've talked about it before. Vasubandhu actually doesn't directly bring it up in this text, but he does in other texts. <clears throat> so very quickly, I'm reviewing it for you because I want to show you uh, something else that Vasubandhu mentions that depends on the eight consciousnesses. So the first five are the five sense consciousnesses. The sixth is the mind, which is uh, conceived of as a different kind of sense organ. Manovijnana is the sixth no consciousness. The sense of self as I said a minute ago, our experience of subjectivity is the seventh consciousness. It's called manas. Sometimes it's also called klistomanas, meaning the manas of the big mistake. And the eighth consciousness, alaya vijnana, is the storehouse consciousness, the endless network of all possible objects and all possible experiences in potential that will come into existence through the working of karma which is why we can change our lives by changing our choices and our practice. 
So two things I want to point out about this framework. The first, I already mentioned the invention of the seventh consciousness, the self-consciousness. Now, of course, the Chittamatra uh, thinkers were not the first Buddhists who noticed that we do have a sense of self. It seems to be perennial with human beings. It's kind of a feature of being human. So it's not like nobody ever noticed that before. But none of them was daring enough to give it a special category. And therefore, none of them acknowledged it or validated it in quite this way. So that's why I really appreciate the mind-only teachings. Uh, they're, they're really good in, in, in their um, straightforward acknowledgement of the importance of self-consciousness. Another thing is that in most Buddhist thought, the first six consciousnesses are lumped together in one group as the six sense organs. And, and this is something that when you first encounter it in Buddhist thought, is really surprising. The concept, you know, that the idea, the, the idea that the mind is a sense organ, like the other five organs. The object of the sight organ, the eye, is a sight object. The object of the mind organ is a thought, a feeling, or a sensation. It's a brilliant thing because this categorization of mind as a sense organ takes away in one stroke the mind-body problem that is sort of the bane of Western thought in which the mind is not a sense organ. The mind is the boss, the Lord, just like God, seeing the truth and ruling over everything. But in Buddhism, the mind is just another organ. Body and mind are not literally categorically different in Buddhist thought. I don't think the Buddhists were trying to solve the mind-body problem. I just don't think they saw that it was a problem. They never had that problem to begin with. On the other hand, of course, the Buddhists did know that the mind was a little different from the other sense organs. For one thing, the mind was involved in the operation of the other five organs. So you don't see anything if there's an eye and something to see unless there's also a mind, consciousness, to register the experience of seeing. So mind is a sense organ like the others, but also it's a little different. In a, in a way, it's more important because it's involved in all the other senses. But in the mind-only school, the mind's difference, again, from the other sense organs is emphasized by putting mind in its own category, the sixth consciousness, rather than six sense organs, there are five consciousness and six consciousness. So I, I bring all that up because in these teachings, Basubandhu is saying, and he's alluding to it here at the end, although he's not directly mentioning it, when you really appreciate the three natures, eight consciousnesses transform. They turn around. The word using is used turn around, and they become awakening radiance in the three Buddha bodies. And this is a very specific teaching. How the five, how the eight consciousnesses transform into the five radiant wisdoms. So the first of the five wisdoms is called the suchness, the wisdom of suchness, or the dharmadhatu wisdom. It's the bare non-conceptualizing awareness of emptiness, and it's the basis of all wisdom. That's the first wisdom, the wisdom of dharmadhatu. The second is the mirror-like wisdom which, just like a mirror, is completely united with its content. It is non-dualistic. And it is considered to be a transformation of the eighth 
consciousness, alaya vijnana. The third wisdom is called the universal nature wisdom, which perceives the sameness and the commonality of all phenomena. In other words, it sees the Buddha nature of everything, which gives rise in the heart to a feeling of equity and impartiality and equanimity for all beings. And that wisdom is the transformation of the second, uh, sorry, the seventh consciousness, manas or klista, klisti manas, klista manas. So this to me is an astonishing and important point. I think it's so beautiful that this wisdom of equality or sameness or universal nature wisdom is a transformation of self-consciousness means that rather than seeing self-consciousness as a problem to be overcome or a trap to escape from, we realize that the reason why we have this sense of self, this subjectivity, is because it's the vehicle by which we can embrace and identify with all beings. We can see the purity and the Buddha nature of all separate beings because we ourselves have the experience of being a separate being. And when we really embrace that experience in its fullness, we understand and empathize with others. And we experience their awesomeness just as we experience our own because there's no difference. It's the same awesomeness. The fourth wisdom is the wisdom of investigative awareness. And this is the opposite. Where the third wisdom perceives the sameness, the Buddha nature of everything. This one perceives the specificity of things, how each thing is different from each other thing. Every blade of grass different from every other blade of grass. Every dharma is unique. And this one is a transformation of the sixth consciousness. So the third wisdom is the wisdom of equity, of equality, of equanimity. And the fourth is the other side, the wisdom of difference. And note that this one is a transformation of the sixth consciousness, our intelligence, our discriminative ability, which is so problematic for us because we're constantly comparing everything, you know? And when you compare everything, everything falls short. But here, that very same faculty is the way that we see the beautiful difference of each thing from each other thing. We have the capacity to understand. And the point of this wisdom is to understand sentient beings and give us the vision and the skill to be able to help, to be able to live in a complex world of differentiation with balance and wisdom. And the fifth and final wisdom is called the all-accomplishing wisdom. This is the wisdom that spontaneously carries out all that needs to be done for the welfare of sentient beings. And it's created through the transformation of the five consciousnesses. So the fourth wisdom, the wisdom of investigative awareness, is the eyes of Avalokiteshvara. The wisdom that sees specifically what each being needs. And this last wisdom, the fifth wisdom, the all-accomplishing wisdom, which is the transformation of the five senses, is the hands of Avalokiteshvara that enable her to be active in the material world, taking care of the needs of beings. So sometimes these five wisdoms are 
counted as four wisdoms. The first two, the Dharma Datu and the, and the perfect mirror wisdom are collapsed into one. But four or five doesn't matter that much. These four or five wisdoms, which are the eight consciousnesses transformed through our practice, are embodied as three Buddha bodies. The great perfect mirror is the Dharmakaya. The universal nature wisdom is the Sambhogakaya. And the fourth and fifth wisdoms, the wisdom of, or the third and fourth, depending on how you count, the wisdom of investigative awareness and the all-accomplishing wisdom, they are the Nirmanakaya. They are the body of Avalokiteshvara with hands and eyes to help. So all of this, it's, it's a great system, isn't it? Isn't it wonderful <laughs> the, way they, the way they work these things out? I, I love it. And, and it's supposed to give us, you know, an inspiring idea of what we're trying to do. But once you get the hang of it, you get the basic idea, then you don't need all these lists and names and different systems because it's all very natural. You just live. You don't need to be bothered by all of these details and all these words and concepts. But that's where Vasubandhu brings us at the end of his text to the three Buddha bodies and the radiance of just being alive. So I've said enough, but if you will indulge me, I want to say one more thing that has nothing to do with any of that because it's been on my mind and I want to share it with you. Unfortunately, it's not uplifting. I warn you. <laughs> Turn off the TV if you don't want to hear something that's not uplifting. Well, I bet you are like me in that you have lately been thinking a lot about war. Which is so troubling and so sad. It all seems pretty simple. Just don't start a war. Seems like a lot easier not to start a war than to start one. And if somebody else starts a war, don't get drawn into that war. If somebody whacks you, turn the other cheek. This Christian teaching is also the Buddhist teaching. The precept is not to kill. What could be more straightforward than that? And yet, Christians as well as Buddhists have fought in wars and supported wars throughout history. Wars of aggression seem easy, just don't do them. Why? But defensive wars are more complicated. If crazy men are rushing forward at top speed with deadly weapons to rape women and kill children, what? Nonviolence? You can lay down in front of them, put your body on the line, and it would be very easy for them to get rid of you and get on with their bloody business. Does it help to pray or meditate if you are there at the time? If the evil leader with a big army is invading your peaceful and just country, wanting to take it over and rule it with repression and brutality, should you be peaceful? 
and give up resistance. Is there a time when you have to fight? How do you know when that time has come? And once you decide to fight, how do you fight? Do you use guns, bombs, tanks, drones? Do you know who to kill and who not to kill? Do you know how and when to kill? And once you start killing, how do you stop? And once you decide that you have to fight and engage in a war as much as you don't want to, how can you have compassion for your enemy when your task is to muster the energy to kill him? Won't your compassion only make your task that much more difficult, if not impossible, which will prolong the conflict? I have no answers for any of those questions. But they are real questions on my mind. And I'm lucky, just like you, I have the luxury of not having to answer those questions. I don't have to answer them. If I did have my answers to them, would I really have any idea what I was talking about? Not to be open to these terrible questions, to imagine that it is very simple and that moral clarity is easy to come by can't be right. Or is it right? So, I bring this up at the conclusion of our study of Vasubandha, not only because it has been on my mind, which it has been, But because uh, after we hear about Vasubandhu's radiance, equanimity, and the three Buddha bodies and the perfect mirror awareness, I don't want to leave this study with the thought that that's the answer to everything. And that the sages of the past have the answers to the problem that we have, that they no longer have. The problem of being a human being in a human world. I, myself, am feeling for sure we're lucky to have such a great teaching and a great way of practice that really helps to cope with all this and that I think is really, really needed for our time. I think these teachings are essential for us to get through these times and into the next phase of what we need to be as humanity. It helps, it really helps. But when Vasubandha says, we don't know, he means it. We don't know. We really don't know. And if we're lucky enough to not to be living in the midst of a terrible and difficult situation at the moment, we are just lucky. There's no reason for it. And we should be grateful and humble. But the truth is, we share these great dilemmas with our brothers and sisters who live them every single day. And if we are disturbed by them, we should be. I certainly am.
So thank you for allowing me my little uh, rant at the end, but uh, I think it's important. So uh, just to say uh, before we take time to talk that uh, we will be sitting on Saturday at Green Gulch and online. And I think even if it's raining, we'll be sitting there. I think the weather forecast doesn't have this giant storm on Saturday. But even if it were a big storm, we would go anyway. I will be there anyway. And we're going to open the sitting very right first thing with the opening of the practice period ceremony. And then right after that, we'll have the Shuso entering ceremony. I have been reading your applications. Thank you all for filling them out. It's really very moving to see what you are intending and what you're, so many people have a lot of experience in the Dharma, people from all over the place, some from Europe, from Australia, from all over the country. So it's kind of, for me, uh, really a wonderful exercise to read these applications. On February the 21st, uh, which is a Wednesday night, Ben Connolly, the author of our book, is gonna give the Dharma talk. I couldn't get him to come. He was busy during these Wednesdays, um, you know, while we were while we were having uh, our study of the text. But he was able to come on February 21st, and I thought, good, we'll, we'll have his point of view on Vasubandhu in a few weeks. So even though it's not our practice period subject, what's the difference? We're going to be, uh, as you know, studying. Uh, Suzuki Roshi's uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, and that will take us to many, many different places. I'll, I'll, I'll probably bring in all kinds of other uh, Dharma talks by other teachers and other teachings. We'll see where it takes us. But Suzuki Roshi uh, is like a little lens on the whole of the Buddha Dharma, everything. He, he, he expresses the whole of the Buddha Dharma in his beautiful way. So that'll be fun. So uh, let's do our groups, and this time, since we're finished with Vasubandhu, let's uh, just talk among each other, among, um, to talk with each other about uh, what this study has been like for you. What have you felt and learned and been perplexed about in the study of Vasubandhu's Three Natures poem? So. Shafi, you'll put us into groups, and we'll have, I guess, 15 to 18 minutes for this, and then we'll see Recording you. Recording stop. We'll see you back after that. <laughs>